Good afternoon. I'm John Walters. I'm Chief Operating Officer at Hudson Institute. I want to welcome you to uh, the Stern Policy Center in this event that's a joint event with Hudson and the Foreign Policy Initiative. We're pleased to have this uh, cooperation. I want to thank them for uh, the collaborative effort. We are honored to welcome Congressman Adam Kinsinger of Illinois, who has joined us today. As you know, he is a leader in national security issues and a powerful advocate for robust American global leadership. Congressman Kinsinger served in the Air Force in both Iraq and Afghanistan and continues his military service to our nation as a pilot in the, in the Air National Guard. He was elected to the House in 2010 and serves on the House Energy and Commerce Committee after prior service on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Today we'll be discussing the Middle East with columnist Josh Rogan, who, as you know, will be joining the Washington Post to write on foreign affairs. We wish him well in his new position. Congressman Kensinger has traveled frequently to the region we are going to discuss today, and we look forward to his views and advice on this confusing, uh, dangerous, and strategically important region and what the U.S. and its allies need to do. Please join me in welcoming Congressman Kensinger and Josh Rogan. Thank you, John. Thanks, everybody, for coming out today. Um, uh, I'd like to give you a couple of extra facts about the congressman uh -oh. that you may not have heard. Uh-oh. Uh, in addition to his distinguished military career, uh, congressman started his political career in college, uh, running for a contested seat in the McLean County Board, yeah. which he held from 1998 until 2003. Uh, after serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, he was awarded the Wisconsin Red Cross Hero of the Year Award after he wrestled to the ground and disarmed a man who was attacking a woman with a knife. Um, in 2011, he was voted number five on the Hills list of the 50 most beautiful people on, in Capitol Hill. The first four are gone now. <laughs> I first uh, encountered Congressman Kinzinger when we went on a trip to the Munich Security Conference uh, with a congressional delegation led by Senator McCain. And uh, not only did I get to see the congressman in action uh, asking important questions and representing U.S. policy abroad, uh, uh, Senator McCain kept introducing him as the grandson of Henry Kissinger, <laughs> <laughs> which the Europeans thought he was serious, but we just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> uh, the second time I interacted with the congressman was when he called me from the Syrian border. He was on a trip with uh, Moaz Mustafa from the Syrian Emergency Task Force and uh, gave me, uh, met with Syrian rebel leaders at a time when even the U.S. government was discouraging uh, U.S. lawmakers from doing just that. Um, I want to open up the floor to the congressman to give some opening remarks, then I'll ask a few questions, and then we'll get input from all of you. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, it's a good opportunity to interact. and. Some good faces in the crowd, too, uh, people that have done a lot of hard work. Syrian Emergency Task Force does a lot of good work for people, and uh, Mawaz has introduced me and introduces people to, you know, to folks in a network uh, to defend the voiceless, and that's what we have in Syria is a generation of voiceless people right now that are being destroyed by a very evil dictator, and uh, unfortunately not enough uh, information, not enough discussion happens about, you know, the real way to fix Syria. It's focuses on ISIS, which is a real problem. Uh, but this is a, a problem in a conflict that's not going to burn itself out. This is not 
you know, a house that's on fire where someday we sit back and eventually it's just a tragedy, but the, just a few embers are burning and, and the house is gone. This is a fire in an apartment complex. And uh, you have one apartment on fire right now. And if you stand back and watch it happen and don't act, it'll spread to the next building, the next apartment, and then the next apartment building. And the whole region will burn down. It's a serious problem. You know, on a broader thing, I know we're going to get into a lot of more detailed discussion. Um, I'm a really passionate believer in America's role in the world for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, I think when our country was created, when it was thought of, uh, we were created with a unique mission. And that unique mission is not just to provide people that live in our country nice clothes or, you know, opportunity, although that's an important mission. But I think we have a unique mission, which is to be an example of self-governance to a world that's drowning in chaos and strongmen and poverty. Uh, we have a unique responsibility. Now, in, in the political dialogue that's happening today, which is actually quite depressing, it's very tempting to fall prey to the rhetoric that we need to just withdraw from the world, we need to lick our own wounds, and we need to cut off all foreign aid. Uh, it's seductive in the political That will get cheers in crowds because people feel like America is in a way worse position than it is. Unfortunately, it's not an honest discussion. All you have to do is look through history and see when America has made the decision to withdraw from the world, that it is only a matter of time until that decision comes back and bites us in a big way. Uh, we look at World War II. When America withdrew after World War I, all the events that happened after and, frankly, the West's reticence to engage against uh, Hitler in Germany led to many, many millions of people giving their lives when this could have been stopped way earlier. So America has a mission, I think, and, and unfortunately in this dialogue, in this discussion, people don't talk about America's mission and that mission, again, to be a, an example of self-governance. But the other issue is this. From altruistically, yes, we have a desire for human rights. Yes, we have a desire to help people. But being engaged in the world is not just out of the altruism of our heart. It's in our own self-interest. You know, when you have leading candidates for president and one says that, you know, countries should pay us to defend them, uh, I, I call that a narcissistic foreign policy. And I call it that because it doesn't recognize the reality that troops in South Korea is not just for the benefit of the South Koreans, it's for the benefit of the United States of America. You know, the understanding that our involvement in NATO is not because we just want to defend Europe out of the goodness of our heart, but because without NATO, we never would have been able to drop the Iron Curtain and bring freedom to, to millions of people and make us safer. Uh, we, we don't talk about the fact that when you talk about leaving NATO and you talk about NATO being passed, doesn't recognize the contribution that NATO has made to the war on terror since September 11th, 2001, and continue to make today uh, in Afghanistan. Are there challenges? Of course. But though, that needs to be done in the context of how do we get NATO reengaged versus let's just get out of the rest of the world. That's a narcissistic foreign policy. So a couple of just top-line points. Number one, I don't think we have a right or an ability to withdraw from the world. Uh, number two, uh, I believe that we need to begin to talk about our role in the world, not just as us doing things for people, but also in the fact that by us being engaged in the world, we are helping ourselves. It is in our own self-interest to do that. And I think when you put words to that level, I think people can begin to see it outside of the dangerous rhetoric of we need to just get out and withdraw. Just other, one other very brief thing on that before we just get into the discussion. Uh, I touched on the human tragedy in Syria. Uh, there are iron curtains that have descended around the world right now all over the place. You know, we all know the iron curtain of the former Soviet Union and the reality of that. And we won that war not by shooting guns. 
there were conflicts throughout you know, the, the decades that existed, but not through guns. We, we solved it through ideas. We solved it because the power of American lifestyle and American ideas were beamed over the Iron Curtain to people that just, I mean, humanity has universal desires, and that's one of them, to have things and to be free. Uh, this is how we're going to win against the Iron Curtains that exist today. There is a role for robust military power against ISIS, and it has to be done. I think there's a role for robust military power against the Assad regime, and that has to be done. I believe military has to be ready and hopefully never be used to push back against Russian aggression in Europe and elsewhere. That's important, but ultimately, the way we're going to solve the problem of radicalization, it's going to be a long war. It's going to be a long war of ideas. And when you have the chaos enveloping in Syria right now, and I went to a, a refugee camp in Turkey recently with uh, Senator Graham and Bono, who's cool, by the way. Um, that makes me cool because I was with him. But when you see you know, displaced populations and you see children that are not going to school, that is fertile recruiting ground for the next generation of extremism. And I noticed that when I was in Liberia once. Liberia is a fantastic country with fantastic people, but as you know, Liberia tore itself up with civil war. So now you see people that are my age, or maybe a little younger in Liberia, that can't read or write, that don't have jobs. And now they're not turning to jihadism because they are, you know, it's a, it's a Christian country, but they're not being utilized. And the same people that are my age that should be teaching the next generation of children are unable to read or write themselves. And so the next generation of children are not getting the education they need to teach the next generation. It's a cycle of poverty. When you do that in certain areas, when you subject children to not being able to read and write, not understanding the bigger world out there, they can easily be whispered into walking into a cafe with a bomb on and blowing themselves up. That is how you drain the next generation of terror, is make sure people have an education and opportunity. With that, that's my opening statements. Thank you, Congressman. Let's start with Syria, uh, a subject that is somewhat undercovered here in Washington, but a lot of, something a lot of people in this room might not care about. We can look back at the five years of US policy towards Syria. We can find a lot of mistakes, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of errors. We are where we are, specifically, as of now, not looking back, looking forward. What are the, what's the list of things that you think that America must do in order in Syria? I think the first thing we have to recognize is it's not going to be easy or pretty. It's going to be messy. But the alternative to inaction we're seeing right now, I mean, could it get messier than it is now? You never say nothing couldn't get messier, but it's pretty darn messy right now. You have freedom of operation for ISIS. You have freedom of operation for other radical groups that hate us. Uh, and you have you know, half a million people dead. I mean, you have kids that wake up that want to be teachers, doctors, lawyers, firemen, uh, that that night are not going to bed because they're, they're killed by a regime that's selfishly interested in taking power. So that's the reality. So can it get worse? I guess. But it's pretty doggone bad now. And without action, it's only going to spread. I think the first thing that needs to happen is the declarative statement and red line, and I'm always hesitant to say red line now in this context, but that Assad absolutely must leave power. And if he will not do it voluntarily, it will be by force. Um, that doesn't necessarily happen immediately, but immediately you put up no-fly zones and you protect the population. The reason you have people fleeing to Europe right now is because they have no safe place to be. Create that safe spot for them in Syria. Make sure that aid is getting in, obviously. Defend that safe area with troops on the ground, with, uh, with a no-fly zone, uh, stuff in the air. And I think in that context of Syrians being among themselves, 
you can begin to build the construct of the next government. You have a police force. Uh, we know the Jordanians are very good at training police forces. You have a police force that polices themselves in the camp and gains the trust of the population. So in a post-Assad world, people trust the police force that's there. You begin to build the, the structures of gov governance. You begin to teach people a version of democracy, and you understand it's not going to look like ours. And, and I think that's mistakes we've made in the past, as we expect an American version of democracy. Uh, but you give people relative safety. And also in that environment, you begin to train the people that are going to take on the Assad regime and take back their country. You know, we have very strict guidance right now on who we recruit into the Free Syrian Army or into our train and equip program. That's going to have to be loosened. Are there going to be people that maybe slip through the cracks? Possibly. But if we get more people than not, we will find a, a, a good alternative. And lastly, just briefly, Arab regimes in the area are willing to do this themselves, but they need American leadership. We, when you have a country like Jordan that's the size of Illinois without Chicago, right? The idea that Jordan by themselves, you know, when somebody says, oh, just let the Middle East take care of it all, we have unique capacity and capabilities that these countries do not. We can build alliances to fix this problem. So troops on the ground, U.S. troops on the ground. I think, I, you know, I think if we can do it with Arab troops, that's way better. Um, and I think, if not, then I think at the end of the day, there has to be some level of it, whether it's to protect the safe zone or otherwise. What level do you think? Whatever's required to protect a safe area. Um, you you know, number in your head, 5,000, well, It depends how big the safe area is. But I think at the end of the day, and again, the preference here is not American troops, because I think there's all kinds of connotations that come along with it. I don't think, you know, even the, the, the countries in the region don't necessarily want to see this. But whatever it takes to maintain that, and hopefully the Saudis have said they're willing, Jordanians, other countries have said they're willing, hopefully we can use that. You said military. There will be American military special operators, as we have now. There will be American military defending the no-fly zone. And by the way, that includes against the Russians, too. So military power against Assad. U.S. military power against Assad? I think whatever it takes ultimately to get Assad out of power must be used. And, you know, let's think, let's go back. I don't want to obviously revisit the mistakes of the past. We know it. But right up to the discussion of the red line in Syria, right up to it, there were all kinds of discussions of how do we get Assad out of power. There were all kinds of uh, people floating ideas, you know, to give them whatever, a billion dollars and leave kind of thing. The day we failed to enforce the red line, the discussions of Assad leaving stopped. They stopped cold. The threat of military power, and Assad knows that any military power turned against him would be the end of him. Even the threat of military power that's legitimate, I think, would lead to a more peaceful exit of Assad. But, okay, so now... But I'm not, no, nobody's yeah. for a quarter million troops in Syria. Understood, but the, you've heard the criticism. If we remove Assad, it creates a power vacuum that the strongest group in Syria will fill. The strongest group is now the extremists. How do you prevent that from happening? Isn't that likely what would happen? It's possible, but I think, look, the Syrian people, the thing that's impressed me about them is they have a national identity. It's different than what you see sometimes in Iraq, where you have a lot of different ethnic groups that, that fight against each other. There is a national identity in Syria. Uh, the Syrian people, I don't think, by and large, uh, want to be run by extremism. So I think there's a natural population that would rise up against that kind of thing. But I think, it, I think we all have to understand that the immediate post-Assad Syria will be messy. It's not going to be pretty. I mean, the United States, when we were developing our own self-governance, we ended up throwing out the Articles of Confederation, and we had a civil war. Um, we expect this stuff to happen immediately, and it doesn't necessarily happen immediately. But I can tell you, the longer that Assad stays in power, the more these extreme groups are able to recruit, uh, the more they're able to, the, the, the Syrian population feels left behind and angry, 
And uh, this is a decision, ultimately, it's going to end up having to be made, and it's going to be bad. Look, Libya, that's essentially where your policy that you're advocating for in Syria was uh, implemented. Libya doesn't look so hot right now. Yeah, but the mistakes in Libya were not in the intervention. Um, I think we made a mistake by calling ourselves leading from behind. I think that's the most ludicrous foreign policy thing I've ever heard, almost. Um, but I think the, the problem was, so Gaddafi's killed. A moderate government is elected, legitimately. And the moderate government goes, hey, listen, we think we have a problem with some of these extremist groups. We're going to need help building an army and, and having weapons to fight against them. And the West turned the back. And in that chaos is where you see what happens. Anytime you have chaos, you have breeding ground for, for terrorism to spread. And so I think the mistake in Libya was the post-action where we turned our back. On that's that what challenge. you're going to have here in this situation, too. Interestingly, on that point, you and President Obama actually agree. Okay. <laughs> uh, There's a lot I don't agree with him on, though. Don't worry. Clearly. So... <laughs> The, the one unescapable fact is that there's no popular appetite in the United States for the no. measures that right. you're advocating, right or wrong, make sense or don't make sense, agree or don't agree. Based on the American experience in Iraq and Libya, the politics are totally in the other direction. How do you fix that? It's leadership. So well, Americans, yeah, Americans listen to their president when it comes to decisions of war and peace. You know, leading up to Iraq, agree or disagree with that invasion, leading up to Iraq, the president gave a series of speeches to bring public opinion on his side. He talked about what we're doing, laid out strategic objectives, talked about the compelling case for it. That has not been done by this administration. Even in attacking ISIS, uh, you know, a cancerous terrorist group, the president has not strongly, public opinion led the president against ISIS, by the way. When you had the vast majority of Americans believing in airstrikes, only then did the president begin airstrikes against ISIS. It's the opposite of how it should be. So I think it takes strong leadership. I think it takes making the case uh, for why this is not going to burn itself out. And the other thing is, quit telling us how war-weary we are. This reminds me of like, you know, when my grandma was alive, you'd go over and she'd be like, Adam, you look so tired. And I'm like, no, Grandma, I'm actually not tired. And she's like, but you look really tired. You're tired, aren't you? And eventually I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm kind of tired. When you have a president that, stand, that continually reinforces to Americans that they're war-weary, continually reinforces that the greatest national objective is to get us out of war versus to fight for what's right, uh, it is absolutely amazing that there is still any public support for any kind of military action. Uh, it takes leadership to say, you know what, you think you're war-weary, and I know some of you are, and I know some of you knew people that, were, that lost their life in the Middle East. But after World War II, the President of the United States did not say, hey, we lost 100, 000, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and had an entire industrial base motivated to winning a war. We won the war. You are tired. They were tired after World War II. And instead of leaving Europe, we doubled down our commitment, basically built NATO, and said we cannot leave the world again. And the American people happily followed. And there were wars that followed because of it. It is leadership that makes the difference. So let's talk about leadership, the leadership of your party, the Republican Party. <laughs> when you talk about a narcissistic foreign policy, <laughs> it's not exactly code. Right. right. We're talking about Donald Trump. Okay. Really? <laughs> Never heard of this man. Donald Trump has put forward an America first policy. It's cute. Can't <laughs> criticizing NATO, advocating for nuclear proliferation, all of those things. But especially on Syria, advocating for a position of bombing the hell out of ISIS, 
leaving the, re the rest of the problem to the region and sta mostly staying out of it. Now, it's not just Donald Trump, and it's not just the Republican voter that seems to be supporting Donald Trump. There's been a long-standing struggle inside the Republican Party between people who agree with you and people who agree with Donald Trump. And now, for the first time that I remember in recent memory, the Donald Trump side has the momentum. Yeah. So talk to me about what's going on inside the Republican Party on foreign policy. Is it true that the hawkish camp is now playing catch-up to the more isolationist, more realist, whatever you want to call it, camp. Is that fixable, in your view, from your perspective? And uh, what, what, what can we expect the Republican Party to look like for the next few years? I think it is fixable because, you know, I remember during the Red Line in Syria debate, uh, when I was, and then ultimately I was one of the first members of Congress to call for bombing ISIS when we thought they were still al-Qaeda, when they went into Fallujah. Um, I mean, I had literally staff fielding calls and in tears because of just how they were being assaulted by people in my own party. Adam wants to start another Iraq war. Hasn't he had enough? You know, this kind of stuff. Um, but we saw that circumstances on the ground changed that public opinion. Um, it is not easy to lead and talk about nuanced foreign policy realities. That's a very hard case to make. What's easy to make is you're tired. Let's get out. Let's bring the boys home and get the hell out. Right? That's really easy. But the people like me in my party that believe like I do are not going to change our philosophy. Just because our front runner may be an isolationist doesn't mean that I'm ever going to become one. And so we continue to do events like this, to go give speeches on the floor, to do news hits, to continue to make that case so that when circumstances catch back up again, which they will, another beheading or another whatever happens, uh, you've been consistent in foreign policy all along. You know, Republican Party has always been the party of defense and security. And, uh, and even though we may be losing that edge now, I don't think we lose that edge permanently. In terms of what does everything look like in the future, I really don't know. I mean... Well, you, you say no, the Republicans won't change, but I knew Jeff Sessions when he was a hawk. Yeah. And I listened to him today, and that man has changed. Yeah. And when I talked to Bob Corker, who's increasingly close to the Trump campaign, I don't, I wouldn't, I'm not going to go as far as to say he's changed, but he's talking differently. So it, there does seem to be a realignment going on. There does seem to be... Uh, a coalescing, not by everybody, but by a lot of leaders in the Republican Party around Donald Trump. Oh, yeah, there's a coalescing happening, yeah. Um, you know, in terms of uh, you probably have better interactions to know if there's an overall change in movement. I know I'm not, and, uh, and I know that I'm a Republican because I believe in America's role in the world, and we'll continue to articulate that policy. Uh, but, yeah, it's a concerning situation that we find ourselves in. You know, when when you have, in essence, a frontrunner that's to the left of a Democrat, Hillary Clinton, on foreign policy, that's a frightening thing. When you have somebody that says he's going to have a really bad relationship with England because David Cameron was a meanie to him, um, but then he's going to have a really great relationship with Vladimir Putin because Putin ran the KGB uh, playbook of flattery on him, and, uh, and he fell right into it. You know, Vladimir Putin's a great guy. We're going to have a great relationship. This is a guy that's tearing Europe up, by the way. This is a guy that's throwing the international order aside. This is a guy that's basically a dictator in a very powerful country, of course, with an economy the size of Italy, I need to reiterate. Um, it, it's a frightening thing. My only hope right now, and it's sad that I'm hoping this, I'm hoping it's an act, right? Now, I don't think we should reward actors who run for president. Besides Reagan, he was good. But <laughs> I don't think we should reward the act of, of outrage in running. I think we, st we have a tradition in this country of having people run as statesmen and electing statesmen. So if it's not an act and Donald Trump is elected president, what's the consequence for U.S. national security and foreign policy? Well, I think if, if what he says, he implements. If yes. what he says, he implements, it's yes. devastating. I mean, think about it. 
He wants Japan to have nuclear weapons. Well, Japan's prohibited by their own constitution from this, by the way, but disregard that. Uh, he wants Korea to pay us for troops in South Korea. Well, they already pay half of the personnel costs. He was surprised when it was mentioned to him that they pay half the personnel costs, and it's actually more expensive to keep American troops in America than to keep them in Korea because of that. Um, I would expect, uh, you know, you're going to see, when we talk about, you know, when America retreats from the world, chaos follows, strongmen follow, dictators follow. Um, I expect if Donald Trump carries out what he says, you will see more of that. And now, you brought it up, Hillary Clinton supports your exact policy on Syria. More pressure on Assad, no fly zones, a renewed effort to train and arm moderate rebels. Are you prepared to endorse Hillary Clinton? <laughs> <laughs> You just want to make huge headlines here. I get it. No, I'm not. You know, I'm not going to support Hillary, and and you know, there's a number of things I, I disagree with her, um, but especially on domestic policy. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm still a Republican. You know, I have a very strong interest in seeing the Supreme Court, whose balance is is you know going to be tipped right now, uh, with conservative leaning justices. Uh, so it's more than foreign policy, but you know, it's it's look, it's a it's a compelling case she can make to certain people. Are you concerned that your um opposition to Donald Trump, while it's not support for Hillary Clinton, could have a cost for you politically. Yeah, and already has. I mean, yeah. you know, in my district, I'm a believer that I'm not elected to come out here and just simply, in essence, take a poll in the district and just do exactly, you know, and it's, we have to listen to the, to the district, right? That's important. It's important to go talk to them. It's important to hear what's on their mind. And in something that's an interest to your district, whether it's, you know, an energy bill or something like that, you need to vote on behalf of the benefit of your district. But when it comes to issues of foreign policy and leadership, I'm very clear about what I stand for and what I believe. And my district every two years has an opportunity to determine if I reflect their values or if that's the kind of leadership they want or if it's not. Um, there are a lot of Kinzinger supporters that are Donald Trump supporters, and I'm hearing from them. They're not really happy about it. But the thing I say to them is, look, this is nothing against you. I mean, I, I understand his attractive message to people, and, I, and he's the legitimate nominee of our party in July. He won. Uh, but I also have to be very true to myself. And let me give you one, one more quick thing on that. I've taken so many votes that I thought would end my career that it's not even funny. Um, I'm not scared of my own shadow, though. Some members of Congress are so scared every vote they take because it might cause a primary, it might hurt them in the general election. I just want to be me. Because, A, it's way more fun to just be you. It's actually fun to defend votes that were out of what people necessarily wanted you to do. Uh, but lastly, and I, I don't want to sound overly emotional on this, but if we're going to ask people to go die for their country, if we're going to ask people to, can you guys hear me? Is it, it's like in and out. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, there we go. If we're going to ask people to be willing to die for their country, you have to be willing to give up your career for the same cause. When we're taking votes out here, when we're advocating for positions, I have to be willing to put my career on the line if we're going to go to a funeral of an 18-year-old that died for his country and salute the flag, my opinion. You'd rather lose your seat than support Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, no, go no, there. You don't have to answer. <laughs> no. Okay, so I, let, look, let yeah. me just say this. I want to get to where I can support him. I want to. Okay, interesting. And my hope is that through you know people like me, even though I understand I'm not as big and powerful as Paul Ryan, and somebody like Paul Ryan saying, hey, it's going to take some time here, it gets Donald Trump to a perspective where he can come closer to what a real Republican should look like. Well, if you ever get there, give me a call. I will. <laughs> All right, so let's move on. I, I, you mentioned your trip to the region, right? And, yeah. Uh, this is a trip that I spoke with Senator Graham about. And, uh, you know, I watched your floor speech on Syria, and 
you, this is a quote from your floor speech. Humanity does not like to be oppressed under these dictatorships. Now, that could apply to Syria. It could also apply to a, some of the other countries you've visited. Sure. Yeah. The first one that comes to mind is Egypt. Now, what struck me when I sp spoke to Senator Graham about that trip that you were on was that his view towards the dictatorship in Egypt had changed. Right? He was a, a, part of a group of Republicans who had advocated for a lot of pressure on Sisi, uh, uh, a restricting of U.S. aid towards Egypt in light of the increased repression uh, on human rights, journalism, uh, civil society and that's going on in Egypt right now. What about you? Where, how do you how, where do you come down on how do we balance our need to work with Egypt on security and our values of pressing basic human rights and democracy? And I, I, you know, I think it's an art, not a science. And, and I say that because, so yes, Egypt has some human rights practices that obviously we would love them to correct. And we, you know, we, we pressed the case with the president when we were talking with him. You know, he pressed back in certain areas, said he'd look into certain areas, um, you know, kind of the typical back and forth. The reality, though, is the president of Egypt is not, has not killed 500,000 of his own people. Uh, the president of Just Egypt... 2,000? Well, I mean, it's, but it's a different situation in that. The other thing is, if Egypt falls, if the Egyptian government collapses and you have, in essence, the same kind of chaotic situation in Egypt that you have in Syria, it's going to make the refugee crisis out of Syria look like child's play because you have 90 million people now that are going to be putting pressure very closely to Europe and everywhere else. So it is an art form. At no point should we turn our back on the human rights violations. That's important to, to keep on the forefront. But I don't think you can make those human rights violations detrimental and engaging in a, with a very important country of Egypt. We saw what happened. I mean... The Muslim Brotherhood was going down a very bad path. The people did not want the Muslim Brotherhood in charge of Egypt, so the army took him out, and then Sisi was elected. So it's a very different situation than a guy that responds uh, to peaceful protests uh, by massively killing a bunch of people, and specifically women and children, because it inflicts a lot more pain. Okay, you can see how some people might see a contradiction between those sure. two yeah. policies, especially when you think back to the Bush administration. You can't, and, and let me just say real quick, you yeah. cannot have this, this idea that if you treat somebody one way, you have to now level that standard on every other, doesn't recognize international politics. International politics is not always fair. International politics is, like I said, it's more of an art than a science. Well, it's understanding consequences. The idea is we either use our whatever leverage we have in a persuasive or even coercive way to get Egypt to behave better, or we don't. And uh, even in the Bush administration, aid was used to promote positive, if incremental, reform in Egypt. The question is, have we lost the ability? Do, is aid no longer useful as leverage? No, I think it's useful. And, but the, the difference is, is, under the Bush administration, there was not an immediate threat of the collapse of Egypt. And you did not have a Middle East in absolute, utter chaos like it is right now. So while in Egypt, again, and it's not putting aside the violations, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned with NGO arrests and everything else. I mean, there's American NGOs, somebody's son, uh, Ray LaHood's son, you know. I mean, this is ridiculous. But at the end of the day, if we disengage from Egypt, if we pull the aid, if we go away and say, you know what, we don't agree with everything, so we're out, we'd have to level the same standard to Saudi Arabia, by the way, and some of these other countries. We have eliminated ourselves from the Middle East. The Russians have taken that as an opportunity to get way back in the Middle East now, and the chaos that follows will make any decision we made look extremely terrible.
And do you have any uh, insight, or have you been briefed on the Egypt air disaster? I don't have any insight that you all don't have, but uh, I, you know, it looks like it was a terrorist attack. Uh, it's possible it was some, you know, catastrophic event in an Airbus. Uh, if it was a terrorist attack, I mean, this is aimed at, I think, as much at hurting Egypt's uh, tourism economy. You know, when I was there, they talk about, you know, tourism's at 20 to 25 percent. That's a huge part of the economy. And now everybody thinks that ISIS is running Egypt. It's not the case. You know, they're obviously big in the Sinai, uh, but they're not running Egypt. Egypt's a great, I would go back to Egypt by myself tomorrow because it's a beautiful area. Saudi Arabia. I heard... Tell me if I'm right, that the Saudi king, you met with him? Yeah. Had something to say about Donald Trump. Can you tell us what it was? <laughs> People have been trying to pry this out of me, so I don't want to quote anything. But I will say this. Um, Middle East leaders are very concerned with the rhetoric. And it's, it's because of this. It's not, it's not really because it's just offensive to them to hear that we should ban all Muslims. I mean, that's offensive. But, you know, Saudi Arabia and UAE just dealt a major blow to al-Qaeda in Yemen a couple weeks ago. That's work that we don't have to do now. There is a, there is, we have to have Muslims as allies. I think Muslim regimes can be the best, or Muslim governments can be the best allies in the war on terror uh, because they understand the religion, they understand the culture, they understand why people are attracted to ISIS. Uh, so I think, yeah, when, when you know, Trump makes comments like ban them all, it does real harm to our international affairs and our ability to leverage when we say, well, we want the Middle East to do their own work, well, we have to leverage those. And when you're saying inflammatory rhetoric just for the sake of a domestic audience, you harm your ability to do that. One Republican congressman, not you, who was on the trip with you told me that the Saudi king said about Trump, is this the best you can do? <laughs> is that true? <laughs> I'll let you quote your sources. All right, that's a non-denial, everybody. <laughs> All right, I, always, I always try not to release too much from those meetings because then they always kind of never tell you the truth. Noted, noted. Yeah. Uh, the, the bill to allow families, victims of 9-11, to sue the Saudi government, where do you stand on that? I, I don't think it's a good move. And, you know, look, I understand the concern, um, but it opens up a lot. It frankly opens up the United States to a lot of liability, too. I mean, you know, mistaken bombings during the war in Iraq. Uh, now, by this definition, Iraq can sue America for every, you know, every uh, mistaken collateral damage action. And I think it's going to do very, very significant harm to an ally that we need. And so I think, it's, it's a, I think it would be a bad move. Now, it's not popular to say it, but I think it's the fact. Understood. The 28 pages from the joint congressional inquiry into the attacks of 9-11 uh, that allegedly refer to the involvement of senior Saudi officials in aiding the attackers, do you think those should be released? I'm kind of on the fence on it. I w at this point, I want to say no, um, because from what we understand, that's a preliminary study that was even refuted later. And I think the potential damage of it for something that was eventually refuted. I mean, if you could release it as saying, hey, here was a draft. By the way, this was refuted. That's one thing. But they will take that, you know, people, the media will take that draft and say, this is what happened. And now, look, to the extent anybody was involved, they ought to be held accountable. But if you're going to just do something and the, the story out of it is incorrect, I think it does a lot of damage. My understanding is that it's raw intelligence that was neither confirmed nor refuted. That's what words. I understand. There, is that your understanding? That's what well? I understand, yeah. And, you know, it's, again, when we make these decisions, they have huge impacts. And it's not just, you, you can't run international politics based on domestic politics. And that's where we run into the temptation to do. Last one before uh, we go to questions. Turkey. Mm-hmm. 
it seems to me, my amateur observation, that we're supporting at least three sides in the war in Syria. We're supporting the Kurds, we're supporting the Turks that are fighting the Kurds, we're supporting the Sunni Arabs that are fighting the Kurds, and in some case each other. And the Tur it's a mess. It's a mess, right? So, you know, what should our policy be towards the Turkish government? They clearly want us to be more aggressive against Assad. They clearly want us to stop supporting the Kurds. They clearly want us to turn a blind eye to some of their human rights violations against right. the Kurds. How do we square that circle? What's, what's, what's the best way? I kind of think you look at it almost as, as I still call for engagement with Egypt, right? We need Turkey. Uh, Turkey is a very important NATO ally, even if, they're, even if sometimes their president maybe would make us believe otherwise. Um, they're an important NATO ally. It's the bridge between the Europe and the Middle East. We cannot afford to turn our back on them. Uh, you can help influence them through engagement, not through ignoring. And, uh, and I think that's important to do. I spent time in Turkey, you know, as a military pilot. And uh, it's a great country. And these are folks that I think, by and large, want to have a great relationship with the United States and the West. Uh, Turkey also is very concerned with, obviously, the Assad situation. And I, and I share that concern. Um, you know, they're doing a great job of handling the refugee crisis. But they're dealing with a refugee crisis because of inaction in, in that area. And the, the last thing I want to say on that is this. We talked about dictatorships. In the 1980s, maybe dictatorships worked because you could oppress information. And if we were all here meeting to overthrow a dictator, one of y'all is going to be a rat and go tell the dictator. So we're not going to do it, right? But on social media, people can talk now. People can get together. They can meet at the square. They can, they can rally. They can hold signs. Dictators cannot oppress people anymore. It physically can't happen of technology and because of the internet. Do you think Turkey should commit troops inside of Syria? Oh, I th yeah, I think so, yeah. Great, yeah. thank you. Let's uh, go to questions. Before I call on anyone, uh, please wait for the mic. Please identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one, and please put your comments in the form of a question. And we'll start over there. That last part being key. <laughs> Hi, thank you very much. Um, my name is Jeff Tyson. I'm a reporter with DevX here in Washington. And Congressman, I'm interested in getting your take on reconstruction in Syria. Um, the World Bank, for instance, is uh, an institution that doesn't typically work in active conflict zones, and they're already you know, mapping schools and hospitals and trying to figure out where they can be most effective so that they can get in and start rebuilding as soon as possible. When is it too soon to begin reconstruction, and how can the U.S. government play a role in that? Well, it's probably too soon with the conflict going on because obviously you don't want to build a school that's going to be bombed by the regime. By the way, you know, I want to make a point, and then I'll get back to finishing that. A lot was made about the U.S. bombing of Doctors Without Borders Hospital in Afghanistan, and a lot should have been made about it. It was tragic. But the regime bombed the Doctors Without Borders Hospital in Syria and killed just as many people, and we barely hear anything about it. Uh, I think that's important to know. Uh, I, think, I think beginning to plan the rebuilding is important. Beginning to figure out where the funding sources are going to come from is important. Uh, but I think obviously with an active conflict going on, there's no use in rebuilding at this point. Unless we begin to have an established safe zone that we will absolutely not flex on, then you can begin to rebuild in that area. Uh, but the other, another important thing, and, and Moaz introduced me to somebody yesterday, that is already beginning to outline the war crimes against the regime. And this is an important thing to map out, and the U.S. commits no money at this point to that, and I think we should. Thank you. Sir.
Omar Hosino. What's up, brother? How are you doing? Good. Definitely. I wanted to ask you about Iran. Um, you know, we're hearing a lot of rhetoric now from uh, the administration and others that Iran could be a partner against ISIS, um, <laughs> that we can work together with Iran to confront regional problems, that perhaps the Iran deal, as it was sold to us by the president, can make them a responsible actor, quote-unquote, uh, President Obama's quote, in the region. So um, I just wanted to ask you, how do we contain Iran now that after the nuclear deal, they've gotten more aggressive all over the region and it's fanning the flames of uh, more extremism? Thank you. So well, much. part of it is, and thank you for the question, uh, we encourage the Saudis to continue to do what they're doing in Yemen. You know, in one, in one end, you have an administration that says the Middle East should handle their own affairs, and then when the Middle East handles their own affairs, they pull them back a little bit and say, well, you guys are getting a little too aggressive in Yemen. Uh, I, we personally said thank you to the Saudis for what they were willing to do. I think that's important. Uh, I think ensuring that you know people that can push back against Iranian interests uh, have that. I, I do not forget that about a third of American soldiers were killed by Iran in Iraq, and uh, maybe it was a quarter. The number's debatable, but there are Americans that died because of Iran. It's not something I forget. Iran was the original sponsor of terrorism before it was even cool. So pre-9-11, uh, you look at, at all throughout history of the Iranian terrorist acts, and they continue them to this day. Uh, they support a regime that uh, murders half a million of its own people. They support Hezbollah. Um, I mean, it is, it is, they are the problem in the region. Why were we concerned about Iran getting nuclear weapons? It's not because we're just anti-new countries getting nuclear weapons. It's because they're terrible actors. And they make the statement that they want to destroy Israel, so we have to believe that. Well, if they say, well, that's just rhetoric, okay, well, then the, the joint plan of action is also just rhetoric. If you believe that they're going to be honest about the joint plan, the, about the, uh, the nuclear deal, you have to believe that they're going to be honest about their desire to take over the region and destroy Israel. If you're not going to believe them here, you can't believe the, the plan of action. Uh, if, I, you know, if I was president today, I'm obviously you can, I, I don't think you can just unilaterally say the Iran's deal, deal is off now, immediately. But I think you have to make it very clear that any inkling of violation of that deal and the deal is off, sanctions snap back, and you're going to rally a world to do what it has to do. We have the technology to prevent getting Iran from a nuclear weapon. They have to decide how they want to get there, either peacefully or other means. Quick follow-up. Uh, President Obama, in his interview with Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, described his desire to see an equilibrium, a new equilibrium in the Middle East between Iran and Saudi Arabia. What do you think about that? It's idea? stupid. I mean, you know... <laughs> There is, no really equal, there is no equilibrium in the Middle East. I mean, it's, it's, you're not going to get to where you have this fairy tale hold hands scenario where, you know, Sunni and Shia love each other and they were just, you know, they pat themselves over a little bit of a misunderstanding. Iran is a very bad actor. And, you know, all people say, they talk about hawkish foreign policies. Um, I'm not a hawk because I enjoy war. I don't, right? But I think being willing sometimes to use military force when necessary makes your need to use military force much less, uh, makes it much less likely to happen. For instance, had we bombed in Syria in the red line, I think you would have a very different Syria today. We'll never know. Uh, never know. Let's go in the back, the woman with the blonde hair. Ann Pierce, I'm an author and commentator. Um, when I attend or read transcripts of hearings on the Hill, I see a certain percentage of Congress people who have the big picture and the understanding of the American foreign policy tradition that you do. But it seems that when I see Congress people in the media, 
they focus exclusively on ISIS and completely ignore terror sponsoring, WND proliferating murderous regimes. And I wonder if you could tell me a little about that dynamic and explain it, because as you said, leadership is so important, and I wonder why the narrative doesn't somehow get to the public. So there's two points on that, and, and I want to be very clear. I, can, I will criticize the president in a forum like this. Not person, I don't, nothing for me is personal. It's policy. Um, but when I'm overseas, I do not. I'm still an old school believer that politics stops at the water's edge, and, uh, and I think that's important. You know, why does that happen? Well, first off, the media's interest right now is ISIS, right? That's so, you know, for instance, if I go on and I talk about ISIS, I try to broaden it to the fact that the incubator of ISIS is Bashar al-Assad. But you have a four-minute hit, and it's hard to make that long point. But just getting it out there is important. But truthfully, I hate to say it, and it's nothing against my, my colleagues. There's some amazing people that serve in Congress. We get a bum rap, but there are great people there. But they did not go to Congress because of foreign policy. Some of them maybe were elected because they, they opposed the health care law or they have an interest in telecom or energy or something like that. And foreign policy is a necessary part of what they have to learn, but they don't have good foreign policy instincts. And, uh, and that's the vast majority of members of Congress. Now, they have expertise in areas that I don't. There are some areas, you know, domestic policy, certain domestic, that it's dry for me and I have to try really hard to understand. Foreign policy is the opposite for me. So... That's part of the reason I try to do so much media is not just because of, I want to go be famous or anything. I try to do media because I think it's important to get this side of the message out there, and it's how I feel I can be effective in these talks. Thank you. Thank you. Um, woman right here in the orange. Sarah Hi, Sarah. Please wait for the mic. Sarah Roderick with the Coalition for Defense of Human Rights. I'm also an Illinoisan. Good. You're uh, smart. Leatherneck. Oh, okay. All right. Redbirds are better, but that's <laughs> Anyway, cool. uh, my question is, uh, in regards to, well, actually, um, something that's kind of uh, been unspoken, um, but the occupation of Lebanon by Syria, um, that hasn't been mentioned too much. Um, but I wasn't sure if you've met with some of the Lebanese uh, leaders. Now, of course, there are different uh, factions there. There's the Christians, the Druze, um, and, of course, the Muslims, Hariri's group. Um, and, of course, some of them have had issues um, throughout past couple decades with Israel um, and Israel's withdrawal uh, from southern Lebanon. And I just wanted to know if you've um, spoken with them, um, because obviously uh, if there is any action in Syria, uh, what might happen with Lebanon, especially with Hezbollah um, being such a big influence um, in southern Lebanon and the Baqa Valley? No, it's good. I met with uh, recently a former prime minister of Lebanon. and uh, Riri? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was it was a really enlightening meeting for me because, you know, in all honesty, I consider myself really to have a good knowledge of the Middle East, but there, are, Lebanon's one that I did not get to know enough of, you know, and it's like, so I'm, I'm learning about some of the dynamics, and uh, a close friend of mine out here is, is uh, she's Druze from Lebanon and talks to me about some of that, just went home and said it's a completely frightening situation now. Um, and obviously the refugee situation is putting a, an amazing amount of pressure. Uh, in terms of how does action in Syria directly affect Lebanon, I, I don't necessarily know the answer to that. Um, but I can tell you uh, that we're, we're worried about the future of Lebanon, as well as Jordan. I mean, these countries, so Jordan has the equivalent right now of the entire country of Canada moving into the United States without a job. You know, I mean, that's incredible. And, uh, so, yeah, these are big issues. Quick follow-up. You visited the, I'm going to mispronounce it, refugee camp? Yeah. Yeah. 
So the U.S. gives by far more refugee assistance than yeah. any other country, yet these accounts are substantially underfunded. What do the people in the refugee camps say to you when you visit them about their view of America, American foreign policy, and American policy in Syria? Well, what we talked about in terms of, you, don't, you try not to engage them too much in the politics um, because, you know, we're there to see the humanitarian side. Uh, but a lot of people ask me why Assad is still alive, right? I mean, they just, they were, they were pushed out of their home because of him. And they're wondering why he's still there. You know, why have they been forgotten? You know, they're voiceless, right? They feel voiceless. And these are people that deserve a voice. And it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, but I got to, I got to, put a good shout out to the Turkish government. I mean, the, uh, what they have done for the refugees was pretty impressive. We went to a refugee camp and, you know, a certain percent, maybe it's 20% of people live in camps, kids running around with backpacks, smiling, laughing, you know, learning Turkish, having a good time, learning how to read and write, and, uh, and proud of their possessions in their little backpack, you know, something to be, something to own, something to be proud of. You can see war in a lot of their eyes. Um, it's heartbreaking because, you know, sometimes I, would, I walked in and I remember this little girl starts kind of shaking and crying. And I, I talked to, you know, through a translator to her teacher kind of what's happening. And she's like, well, you know, obviously she's got a little PTSD and, and, and frightened. And, uh, and this is just a young girl. And, you know, that, and that's repeated hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times throughout the population. But the Turkish government is doing a good job of caring for these people and taking them to school. And it's not just out of humanitarian, even though that's humanitarian, but it's out of Turkey's own self-interest. Because people that are educated and have a good view of Turkey are much less likely to, uh, to use terrorism as a weapon. Thank you. Here in the front. Congre uh, Mohammed Jain, I'm uh, Syrian American Council. Con Congressman, thank you so much for your comments. Uh, you have a question about YPG. Uh, Kurdish forces in Syria. How do you assess the relationship with them? Today, uh, photos were circulating on Twitter of U.S. Special Forces dressed in uh, YPG fatigues. Uh, do you think that long-term uh, working with the YPG, the U.S. can win, win uh, the war against ISIS in Syria? Thank you. Yeah, it is a good question. I don't know if just working with the YPG is going to win the war in Syria. Uh, we've made decisions to work with different groups, enemy of my enemy thing. And, uh, but I've got to tell you, it, it, when all is said and done, I think what we have is a somewhat flawed strategy against ISIS anyway right now. And, uh, and I think we're, that there's a potential that we are stirring a lot of passions or tensions that may come back to bite us when this is done. Um, I don't know that for sure, but I will tell you, that's why I think we have, so the overall strategy, you have no military power and World War II military power, right? Like everything. Somewhere on here in the spectrum is what's required to defeat ISIS. Let's just use that. Let's quit incrementally increasing. Let's just use what's necessary, work with people we need to, get it done, and try to work the broader issues, the, the Turkish uh, Kurd issue, Kurds in Iraq, Iraqi Kurds that don't, you know, it's, it's a mess. Do you think there's a difference between the YPG and the PKK? Yes. No. I don't know. I don't really want to get into, into the uh, middle of that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I know which battles to pick and not to right. pick. Right. Uh, all the way in the back, sir, in the blue shirt. Yes, my name is... Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. My name is Paul Johns. I'm a Persianist living here in Washington, D.C., and while I was studying Persian at the University of Tehran in the early 70s, I would travel to Mashhad and uh, 
go to Afghanistan and I would be greeted by a contingent of the U.S. Army on the Iranian side and a contingent of the U.S. Army on the other side arresting drug traffickers from the poppy fields. Then when I would go south from Mashhad to Yazd, I would pass by a very nice long strip of concrete which had built built in the 1950s as a U-2 spy plane landing site for emergencies when they would uh, fly the plane from Peshawar, Pakistan to Norway. Now, when I was there a few years ago, <clears throat> we now have, I discovered, a battalion of Marines on the Afghani side and regular RA-style Iranian army cooperating with us arresting drug traffickers. They have a common need. When you go south, past the old airport, it is now an antenna field. In the old days, it was manned by National Security Agency people. It is currently manned by National Security Agency people. We cooperate with Iran on the eastern part of the country. Can we have a question, please? I would like to have the people comment about what I just said. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to say. Do yeah, we have yeah. areas of, let me try to... Yeah, I guess there's areas, areas of common of, interest. Of common interest, or the ways yeah. that we can cooperate with... If okay. it's in our interest to not have drug trade, and it's in Iran's interest to not have drug trade, that's fine. Uh, that doesn't mean that we have to accept, you know, Iran's larger behavior in the area. I mean, look, we cooperate with Russia in certain things, right? But that doesn't mean we have to accept an illegal annexation of Crimea. Um, so... Yeah, that's a good good point, I guess. But right here in the th uh, third row. Hi, I'm Sarah Kaiser Cross, and I'm with ACLED. And I wanted to ask a little bit about the perception of the United States in the Middle East. Um, you talked about the need for strong U.S. leadership and the need to bring in perhaps um, a stronger military force. My question is, how do you balance as a policymaker the mistrust from a lot of the regimes for letting people like Mubarak fall and balance that with the expectations of the Middle Eastern populations to practice what we preach in terms of democracy and freedoms? No, I mean, it's a good question. And, you know, we, one, one of the areas where we've let people down, for instance, is uh, in Iraqi and Afghan translators that we were promised, in essence, visas to come to the United States if they worked for us. They did. Many have come, but there are many that are still waiting and many that have been killed waiting. Uh, Any time like that, we violate the trust of the people. And uh, look, there's going to be another need someday for another war. You know, I'd love to say there isn't, but there, there will be. And, uh, and people have to look at that. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of mistrust in the United States right now. Um, I think there was a perception for a while that the mistrust was based solely on the invasion of Iraq. And somehow Middle East chaos is a result of the invasion of Iraq. Well, a fruit stand vendor in Tunisia didn't decide to light himself on fire because the United States invaded Iraq. It was because he was being oppressed, and that sparked a fire. Um, you know, you can always argue the invasion and everything else. But I think part of the issue is the, the, the population of the Middle East feels very left behind. Now, it doesn't mean they want, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of American troops around, but it means they want to feel like they have a friend. And you see that in the Saudis right now who... Uh, make it very clear they want their alliance to be with the United States, but feel that we've turned our back on them. Uh, you hear it in an ambassador that told me, you know, when 
Trump makes his comments, for instance. He says, we're a very pro-American. You guys see us as very pro-American, but you don't realize we have forces within our country that do not want us to be pro-American. And when you say comments like that, it puts fuel on the fire, and we have to defend domestically. Uh, so I think watching our rhetoric, I think following through on what we say uh, will, is, is very important to bringing the, the folks with us and bringing the countries with us because the detriment is what we're seeing in the chaos that's enveloping. Thank you. We have time for a couple more questions. Enthusiastic woman with the brown hair. You are real smiley. Yes. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, I'm Olivia De La Pena. I'm a student at George Mason. And one thing I was curious about is with dealing with Syria, how do you prevent the same thing happening with Iraq? Because we went in in 2003, we invaded Iraq, we took out Hussein, but then all of a sudden it seems like we kind of left them there once we pulled the troops out of Iraq. Are we, like, how do you go about that with like, reestablishing um, Syria as opposed to just kind of leaving them hanging? Because I know you outlined some things that we can do, but how much money is it going to cost and how are you going to enforce everything to make sure that we don't have this major collapse just because this country doesn't have a government anymore? Yeah. So how do you basically stop? How do you, how do you, in essence, how do you ensure that Syria is a little more successful than what we had? I, I, the point I want to make first off is, and I firmly believe, Iraq was won. We won that war. And uh, it took a while to get there. It was messy. A lot of bad decisions were made. But when I was there in 08 and 09, I mean, I, in 08, it was full-on war still. In 09, I saw kids playing on the street, playing soccer. When we left in 2011, President Obama himself said we are leaving behind a stable government. Um, the problem is when we withdrew, sectarian tendencies came back, people lost faith in the government, and now we see the problems that we have today. I think in a post-Assad situation, um, it's, it's, it's going to take the, – the lead is not us. And I think we need to make that clear that another 250,000 American troops rebuilding Syria is not going to happen and would, probably would not be very successful. It's going to take alliances in the region that understand the culture, that understand the people, that can help them work through their democratic process or whatever their process looks like and, uh, and build their institutions of the state. We have a ability to – help in execution of military power, some resources, and bringing a lot of other resources from other countries together, NGOs, you know, other uh, state actors. So um, you know, I think at the end of the day, we have to have a better post-government plan than we did in Iraq. This will have to be the last question, and we'll go all the way to the back. Gentleman with his hand up right there. We forget nobody, including the people all the way in the back. My name is Roger Boat. I'm a Barcelona-based consultant. Uh, well, thank you, Congressman, for your remarks. Um, my uh, question would be, in the um, post-Assad scenario that you have sort of la laid out, um, you, you, you say that um, you expect Arab leadership on to, you know, to basically lead the, uh, the reconstruction of Syria. My question would be, um, what will the situation of Christians in Syria be under these circumstances? Because, of course, we know that Saudi Arabia, in spite of their, um, you know, of, of their taking offense at Trump's comments, is not known for respect uh, for religious liberty either. Uh, we know that a substantial part of the opposition in Syria is based on, is made of hardline Islamists. So, um, how can we make sure that this post-Assad order um, is also, you know? Good, good for the religious minorities well, in Syria. And I think that's part of the that's part of the process of of figuring out what government looks like and how it works. And you know, I can't get up here and give you the blueprint of that yet. It's just that that will be figured out by the Syrian people and by players in the region. You know, the longer this conflict goes on, though, uh, Christians are being kicked out, killed by ISIS. 
uh, by certain actors, and that's important to know. Assad is not some protector of Christianity either. Assad uses minority populations to maintain power. And the other bigger thing to keep in mind is this. Anybody that gets seductively into the belief that, you know, well, at least the devil we know is better than the devil we don't. The devil we don't being what does Syria look like in, a, in a, you know, does it become a terrorist state, which I don't think it does. Um, but Assad will never regain control of Syria, ever. I mean, he can't. There's no, you know, Syria, as big as it is, as much as it is, Assad, the best he can do for himself personally is hope to hold power in Damascus and Alawite regions in some areas. He will never reassert control over all of Syria. So what is the alternative? So Assad stays in power, and you continue to have a huge part of Syria governed by these groups that we don't like, ISIS, al-Nusra, some of those. Um, so I think this idea that somehow you know Assad with Russian backing or whatever can reattain Syria and we can go back to the good old days of oppression, but at least stability, is completely unrealistic and will never happen. So you look at that and say, we either have a permanent, uh, very bad man killing his people in one part of Syria and then an area for ISIS to thrive and flourish or the next generation of ISIS in perpetuity, or we at least hope that with Assad gone, it gives the Syrian people hope and a self-interest and self-governance. And, uh, and it will be a messy few years after that, but we can get there. I think that's a safe prediction. Congressman, in closing, I'd just like to say that I'm, although we are the same age, I'm old enough to remember a time when Congress was full of a generation of veterans from the greatest generation. And over the last decade or so, a lot of them have sadly parted. Uh, but uh, agree with you or not, like you or not, you are uh, a part of a new generation of veterans serving in Congress. So on behalf of all of us, I'd thank like you. to thank you for your service. Thanks for being out here, guys. And thank you for your time today. You bet. Thank you. The purpose isn't to have you listen to anything insightful I'm going to say. My name is David Adesnik, the policy director at the Foreign Policy Initiative. But we do want to give the congressman and his, cha uh, his staff a chance to depart and get back to their other responsibilities, since they have quite a few of them. We just ask you to stay seated while that happens. But first, how about another round of applause for really a great guest? Thanks so much. And while I have you as a captive audience, all I really want to say is it's been a pleasure to co-host this event. Um, it's been a pleasure to work with everyone at Hudson. Uh, it's been great to see Dan McKivigan. I haven't seen it in a long time and work with the rest of the Hudson staff. Thank you very much to Josh Rogan. I think that your uh, rapid-fire interrogation helped bring out the best in our guest. Um, and thank you also to my own staff at FPI, or my, my team, uh, Elaine Stern, Director of Government Relations, as well as Lindsay Markle. Um, so with that, I think we have given our, our guests the necessary pause. And just again, thank you for coming to the Stern Policy Center here at Hudson. Hudson's been great to work with. Uh, go online and see their stuff. And you can see our URL here. Please go online and sign up for our uh, overnight brief, which will uh, summarize world news stories for you every morning. Thanks a lot. <laughs>